back to the Politics Unboxed podcast and today we are going to be starting a new recurring segment. It's going to be called Investigating Ideologies and as the name suggests it's going to be me looking at a political ideology, seeing if it's relevant today, what it relates to and how we can see sort of the progression of that ideology over time. I'm probably going to do a couple of episodes on each ideology each time, going after a, a different question. Um, the ones I'm going to focus on are liberalism, socialism, conservatism, and today's topic, which is going to be nationalism. So the first question I'm going to ask about nationalism is, well, is it relevant today? I know it seems counterintuitive starting at the end but um, if it's still relevant today or whichever the answer is we can then go back and explore times when it may have been relevant in the past uh, times it was less relevant in the past and how it got to the stage it is at today so today's episode is going to be is nationalism still relevant and then hopefully I'm going to try and relate that to things like President Trump and the Brexit vote as two examples of it so nationalism In a word, yes. Yes, it is incredibly relevant today. And you could make the argument that it has scarcely ever been more relevant than it is today. Um, But the context in which nationalism exists has changed dramatically. So drastically that the people who first envisaged nationalist thought would probably not recognise it as the nationalism for which they were fighting. So modern developments which have really affected the world of nationalism. Uh, The first one is increasing globalisation. So the increasing levels of interconnectedness, interdependence between uh, global economies, the growth of multinational corporations, uh, the erosion of the protectionist barriers, free trade, uh, internet markets, international crime uh, organisations, Europol works across borders, and of course supranational organisations, so things that are bigger than just the one government and exist above national level, things like the EU. The growth of them, well, it's it's completely changed the, the world. Uh, whether you believe that's for the better or for not, it has completely changed the way the world is. Uh, gone are old treaty arrangements. Uh, now it's which global group you in and even within those groups there are plenty of crossovers so uh, britain still has the uh, so-called special relationship with america it's within the eu or it's soon not going to be just two days to go now um and china developing links all across the world with the BRICS countries there those are countries who are all at roughly the same level of international development and they're trying to build themselves up as a partnership but china has partnerships all over the world And um, people will argue that, because of all this, the independent power of nation-states to have control over their own affairs, so the sovereignty argument, they will argue that that has diminished. And this sort of line of thought has led to a reaction amongst many conservative parties and politicians. Uh, And they fear that nations will lose their economic independence and their cultural distinctiveness as a result of this increased globalisation, which throws the idea of nationalism into sharp relief. Um, 
but that is just one of the reasons why nationalism is so important today. Uh, the second one, I've sort of touched on it with globalisation, but the division of the world into regional trading blocks. So the EU, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is actually uh, today Donald Trump has just signed the replacement for it, the US-Canada-Mexico Agreement. Um, and of course the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or uh, ASEAN, uh, they've had a similar effect to globalisation. All of these organisations are, uh, to some extent, either intergovernmental, so acting between, uh, but at the same level as, national governments, or supranational, so acting above the, above the heads and with a, a greater level of decision-making than the national governments of which member states they represent. Um, but these have actually struggled to find some sort of collective identity that can rival the nation-state. So each individual country in those blocks will still definitively see themselves as that country and then potentially a member of that block. So uh, Germany is still Germany, but it is an important member of the European Union. Um, nevertheless, some people will see these regional trading areas as a major threat to the traditional nation-state and indeed with the increasing levels of uh, interdependence, uh, I think it's written in the preamble to the European Union Constitution that they will seek for an ever closer union. Um, with the growth of that interdependence, there is the potential for them to become a threat to that traditional nation state. And the third point is the rise of religious fundamentalism. Uh, we point to the Middle East specifically for this. Uh, this is cut across the ideas of national identity. Uh, and it's threatened it. And um, this actually has given rise to a phenomenon called the failed state. Um, someone called Noam Chomsky, who's a sort of a socialist and anarchist thinker, uh, refers to failed states. And this is states that have become uh, quite hopelessly fractured and ungovernable as a result of forces, often religious, that have become rivals to national unity. So uh, you choose most of the countries in which um, Islamic State or ISIS or Daesh or however you want to to label the that particular caliphate, anyone in there, any country been affected by that, then religious fundamentalism has seriously threatened the ideas of national identity. Uh, as well as that, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen and Somalia, they're all facing sort of major troubles regarding religious fundamentalism and it's coming at a threat to some of their their national stability and faced faced with all three of those pressures so the globalization regional trading blocks and religious fundamentalism nationalism has sometimes collapsed in in many countries some countries are being absorbed into these regional trading blocks and they are losing parts of their their national identities with it but in Western developed countries particularly, uh, it's sort of gone the other way. There's been a rise in populism, which has sort of created its a new form of nationalism. Uh, really, well, it's not such a creation, it's more of a revival of a form of nationalism. It's not really been seen since, sort of, we're looking at the 1900s, 1910s. Uh, and this is often referred to as nativism. Now, in simple terms, nativism is a belief 
that favours the native inhabitants of a country over groups that have arrived more recently. So it's a very insular uh, ideology. Uh, it's a very self-focused way of thought. Um, but it is a way of thought that has been gathering steam in Western democracies. And particularly the developed countries in the West, it's been gathering steam. Um, now this this preference for the so-called native inhabitants of a country may have more than one root cause. It could be some sort of exaggerated patriotism, where you feel uh, an outpouring of pride for one's country, and therefore the country men and women uh, should be preferred over the any new migrants. However, some people see it as simply an exaggerated form, uh, or a hidden form rather, of racism. And it can also be connected to things like cultural nationalism, where the entire idea of a national identity is built around a shared culture, or a fear that perhaps your national culture, or any particular culture in fact, is under threat from rival cultures. And most people, when they feel uh, under threat in terms of a cultural threat, would point to migrants who are bringing in their own cultures. But above all, even above this hidden form of racism argument, tends to be that the ideas of nativism are economic. And the economic roots of nativism, they are the belief that new immigrant groups threaten the economic position of the long-standing native population. Immigrant groups tend to be uh, dynamic, hard-working, uh, they reach for perhaps higher targets, maybe they're more motivated, we don't know. Um, they challenge sort of these, we might refer to as entrenched positions of existing populations. As well as the sort of the high achieving, high skilled and very driven migrants that come in, there's also a larger influx of low, low skilled migrants as well, who are willing to work for low wages, put in long hours. Again, they're doing very hard work because they feel it will improve their situation. And perhaps the native inhabitants or the people who would follow this economic nativism feel that those migrants are bringing down the wage rates and creating unemployment. Um, now, a lot of people can trace this back to sort of globalisation and increased competition. They feel that's a threat to domestic income levels and employment. And that would come from that same belief that an influx of migrants threaten the economic standings of the people who are there. Now, these deep-rooted concerns in many people about this, so this nativist ideology has sort of grown up through a host of new political movements and parties. So UKIP, a prominent example from a couple of years ago in Britain, Donald Trump's following in the USA, uh, Front National in France, or now I think it's been renamed to Rassemblement National, and there's a, a party for freedom in the Netherlands, uh, and that's a very it's becoming a an increasingly popular movement. So the slogans, um, make America great again, America first, from Trump, France for the French, from uh, Marine Le Pen's party, uh, and make the Netherlands great again, for the party of freedom in the Netherlands. And these parties are universally opposed, and these movements as well, they're universally opposed to excessive immigration, 
They are protectionists, so they are trying to impose tariffs and taxes on imported goods. They want to protect domestic industry. They want to protect domestic employment from any foreign competition, be that uh, a foreign firm, a foreign migrant, um, anything that would threaten this native population in any way, they would be prepared to try and mitigate that. Yet, even with all these new nativist ideologies, the traditional forms of nationalism are still around as well. In Vladimir Putin's Russia, for example, there's a very typical conservative form of nationalism. Um, very protective, but, well, and also very defensive of its own national boundaries, very keen to portray itself as superior to other nations, uh, and this nationalism thrives in a number of former Soviet republics. Uh, liberal, liberal nationalism too persists in countries which seek the freedom of their peoples um, from potentially a domination by a more powerful culture, uh, as well as things like civic nationalism. Now, civic nationalism is where uh, it's particularly apparent in in Scotland. Um, Scottish independence is very much a, a civic, civic nationalist movement, wherein a sense of shared national pride in the values of a nation uh, bind bind people together. Um, obviously, in, in Catalonia and other areas, there have also been sort of civic nationalist movements. Now we're going to bring it back. Uh, how does today's nationalism reflect on President Trump? Well, I've mentioned it a little bit already. He is very much following in this this nativist ideology, um, protecting America, keep oh sorry, make America great again, uh, America first. Uh, very much an insular, defensive, protectionist type of nationalism, showing America or trying to show America to be the best on the world stage, to have the best military, to have the best industry, to have the best. Um, records on unemployment, have the best economy. Whatever means by which you can compare countries, Donald Trump wants America to come at the top of the standings. And Donald Trump will do anything to make sure that people in America are not put second, uh, according to his, his campaign rhetoric. And then if we reflect that onto Brexit as well, the arguments of loss of sovereignty through regional trade agreements, cutting across national boundaries, well, an argument you, you can make because of the pooled sovereignty of, of the European Union. Um, potentially the economic nativism, where they see increased levels of low-school migration. High-school migration as well. There was a lot of high-school migration from the European Union, but there were also low-school migrants, and people could have seen those low-school migrants and thought... Um, that they were depressing the wage rate market, uh, rising unemployment, lowering wage, wage rates, and led through the economic nativism argument to vote for Brexit. So those two points alone show quite clearly that, to answer the question of today's podcast, I'm slightly running over, so I'm going to wrap up a little bit, to answer the question, yes, undoubtedly so, nationalism is 
definitely relevant in today's society. Um, as I said at the start, possibly more than ever before. It will be interesting to see if this is a phase of nationalism, whether we will once again move through a sort of populist, nativist argument and then come out the other side to see, again, a more global, uh, globalist society, an internationalist society. Potentially we will. But potentially this, this trend back towards nationalism could persist for a while, depending on the various successes of those key movements. So if Donald Trump, if his support collapses for the next presidential election, uh, at the moment it seems unlikely, but if it does, then we could see the um, sort of a drop-off in this type of American nativism. But we will have to wait and see. For the while at least, nationalism remains extremely relevant. So all that's left for me to do is thank you very much for listening. Uh, I hope to see you around here for the next podcast. And goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>